Hi friends, welcome to the Inclusive Storytelling Podcast. I'm your host, Ashwini Prasad, and today, oh my goodness, we are speaking with Zosimo Maximo, who is a Filipino U.S. American. He was born in West Virginia in the United States, and he grew up in Southeast Ohio. He ventured out to New York City to study fashion at Parsons School of Design, and his journey has taken him to working with high-end clients in fashion like Damon Wayans, to a streetwear business, to directing, producing, and being a filmmaker. Today, Zozomo and his wife are focused on an inclusive health and wellness streaming channel, and Zozomo is going to be doing a documentary about streetwear. So exciting. I'm so excited to share Zosimo's conversation with you all, especially during API Month, which is Asian, U.S., American, and Pacific Islander Month in the United States. And Zosimo and I are part of a group of API creatives. So thank you so much for being here. Um, if you are liking this content, please leave a review, download, and share these episodes. And in addition, I'm an anti-oppression and anti-racism educator and consultant. And if there's any way that I can support you or your business in your work being a social justice advocate, uh, feel free to connect and let's see if we can create some safe spaces together. You can find me at theinclusivescreenwriter.com or on Instagram at The Inclusive Screenwriter. All right, folks, take a listen. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Inclusive Storytelling Podcast. I am so excited for today, like I always am. But this guest is so special because he and I also connect outside of the podcast. So, Zosimo, welcome. Hey, hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Oh, we're so excited you're here. So Zosima, as I do with all my guests, you know, you're the one that can introduce yourself. So <laughs> much better than I can. So give us a little spiel about who you are. Sure, sure, sure. I am a fashion designer turned filmmaker that has always had a entrepreneurial spirit in me. So I guess you can call me a serial entrepreneur you know, kind of looking at my track record, I was uh, born in Charleston, West Virginia. There's a little trivia for you. How does a, a Filipino guy like me get born <laughs> in Charleston, West Virginia? <laughs> but my, my dad was a, uh, he's a retired physician, but uh, back in the late 60s, there was a uh, you know, a movement to bring uh, Asian and Indian uh, resident doctors to the U.S. And that's how we're kind of all scattered across the Midwest and America. And my dad was recruited to come to uh, West Virginia. Um, so my oldest brother and sister were born in the Philippines. And then um, the brother that is above me, he and I were born in Charleston, West Virginia. We didn't spend much time there, but I actually grew up in Cambridge, Ohio, which is kind of a little bit east of, of Columbus and south of Cleveland. Um, but I knew, uh, I knew my world was a little bit bigger than, you know, Cambridge, Ohio. So um, I was like, well, it's going to get me out of here. And uh, that happened to be fashion. I was that, that kid with the first pair of Jordans. I was very <laughs> much into streetwear and sneakers and athletic wear um so you know nike adidas stussy polo you know things like that 
So um, that is how I got out of Ohio and became a fashion designer um, by going to Parsons um, in New York City. So that was um, uh, where I did my undergrad. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous intro. I just love it. Fashion design, and it really kind of relates to the work that you're doing now, just because I think athleticism is, has also turned into something that is fashion forward, whether you like sure. it or not. Um, I love what you're saying about being born in West Virginia, because I actually grew up in Calgary, Alberta. So it, it always kind of fascinates me, right? The stories about how somebody with Indian ancestry ends up in Calgary, Alberta. Right. And it is, it's that movement of jobs. Other immigrants went there for work or, or for school that people follow. And you can find this tracing almost of how people got to a certain area that are immigrating. And it's usually related to other people coming for school or for work or other opportunities. That's fascinating. So I didn't know. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it, it's neat. amazing. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But uh, what's neat is that, you know, a lot of uh, families could have immigrated towards the bigger cities and the coast, you know. So, you know, having like uh, the Asian and, and Indian physicians recruited kind of put us everywhere um, so that there were communities. Um, we were in, a, I grew up in what was called the tri-state area of West Virginia and Ohio. So, uh, yeah, it was to, to see, you know, Filipinos in Pittsburgh, you know, Wheeling, Ohio, you know, or Wheeling, West Virginia. Yeah, so it was Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio. So to actually see um, some, some BIPOC faces um, helped, I believe, uh, these smaller rural areas, you know, get a taste of our culture and who we are and, you know, bring us to a, a modern day of, of uh, understanding and uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, integration within these smaller communities. No, and it is fascinating because it's everything from the doctors, like physicians, like your family to, you know, like my parents worked in convenience stores and gas stations. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, again, iterating that we're not a monolith and there's so many different ways that people come. So you end up at Parsons, right? In New yes. York City. So you're 17, 18 years old around <laughs> then. How was your experience, you know, doing fashion in New York City at that time in your life? And what did you see? Were you getting a similar experience, you know, with New York, New York being so diverse, were you, you know, were you taught by diverse people? Did you have a diverse influence and in what fashion looked like outside of from maybe the Jordans, right, which influenced by a black man, but in your, I'm interested, you know, in the people you were surrounded by, did you feel um, that it was one diverse and did you feel included in your work and schooling and the people you were around? I think New York City is just amazing. So, you know, it truly is the melting pot. And, uh, you know, when I got there, you know, not only was I introduced to several other ethnicities outside of Asian, but within, you know, Asian uh, ethnicities, I was meeting, you know, Vietnamese and Cambodian and Korean, uh, Chinese. Um, and, uh, I grew up in an area that maybe only had uh, less than a dozen families of, you know, Asian descent. So to be able to 
open up my world and to meet, um, you know, other Asian ethnicities was, was really, really cool. Um, you know, a, a, a lot of international students at Parsons as well. One of my early mentors is somebody that I was interning with while I was at Parsons was Anna Sui. Uh, Anna is an American Chinese fashion designer that was really, really big in the 90s. She was like the uh, pioneer of the kind of glam rock um, era. And uh, yeah, to have her as really my first boss was, was pretty cool. You know, I was being exposed to somebody at a really, really high level that worked extremely hard to get there, um, that was super confident leading um, you know, her team, a, a very diverse team. So I um, was very fortunate to just get really immersed in New York City, you know, taking that in as a kid from Ohio. That's like, whoa, it's like so much going on. Um, but to be with, with Anna those first couple of years was really, really cool and fascinating. Yeah, that's amazing. That it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have that experience. And so I I want to dig just a little bit more. Um, were your instructors also diverse? So it seems like your students, and of course New York City was. What about your instructors? You know, were they giving you kind of the history of Chinese cloth and textiles, for example, or was the content a little bit more centered on uh, Eurocentric? Yeah, I, I don't really recall uh, too much, you know, coming from my instructors. Um, but, you know, where, where I was really seeing like uh, culture was like going down to Chinatown and even yeah. looking at, you know, the clothing that's just hanging in the street, um, the textiles there. Loved, you know, Indian areas of New York City, you know, that's a, where I was exposed to uh, and fell in love with Indian food. I think I eat Indian food at least once a week now, but <laughs> that was New York City. Um, and then, you know, the, the street festivals of New York City, the, they're always every weekend, um, you know, one specific ethnic group was probably having a parade and I would love just kind of stumbling in on those par parades and seeing the, the you know, the pageantry and the costumes and, and everything. So um, just really soaking it in, I think, and maybe not even knowing that you're taking that much in. Um, I would just, uh, back when rollerblading was kind of big, I would just put the <laughs> rollerblades on. Yes. And uh, that's how I got to really learn the city. I would just pick a new area every weekend and rollerblade in and out of those areas. And then that's when you start to discover like, oh, there's a whole Indian section over here, or there's a Brazilian section up here. Um, and then, you know, Chinatown is always a, an amazing experience in New York. But um, I hope, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that I was learning about international costumes and, and textiles at, at Parsons, but, you know, it was mainly the exposure of being in New York City and, and meeting the people. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Because you're not the only one who's who said this to me, you know, not just on the podcast, but in general, where you're kind of finding this community and it's very diverse, but you're not necessarily getting it from the institutions you're in. The institutions you're in are still very Eurocentric based. So I wish you could tell me that too, but unfortunately your story is not inconsistent or a, a surprise. Uh, but it, it's something I wanted to highlight for our listeners that, you know, these things, I think they're getting better and I hope that they continue to get better, but they have been pretty broken and pretty exclusive for far too, well, 
probably since their inception, unfortunately. All right, so you're this rollerblading. I just see you right now, right? <laughs> early 20s, doing your thing in fashion school under this wonderful mentor. What happens after um, you graduate and you're you know, on that career path? Yeah, so I discovered streetwear, which was, um, you know, really starting to emerge in the um, early 90s. So I lived in the Lower East Side, that St. Mark's area, the Lafayette area of the Lower East Side. You were starting to see these really cool streetwear shops emerge and skate skate shops. And those two worlds were kind of blending, which is, which is uh, you know, as a filmmaker, um, one of my next projects is the history of streetwear that we're um, gonna tackle next. But yeah, I fell in love with this culture of, it was a lot of young artists being rebellious and, you know, anti-corporate and, uh, you know, flipping corporate logos and, you know, into these fun t-shirt graphics or skateboard graphics. And uh, I just really, really love the culture. And I moved my attention away from high fashion to streetwear and uh, I started my own label in New York City called Cooley Clothing New York. So amazing. Oh my gosh, you're taking me back to the streets of Vancouver because I had my formative years in Vancouver, BC. And I remember we'd walk in and out of those skate shops and the thrift mm. shops and the streetwear shops. And, you know, you had the large t-shirts. This is the 90s, right? So mm -hmm. that, that baggy look was definitely in and the flannel. And I remember just like all these t-shirts just hanging all around in all the shops. You're just totally taking me back and I absolutely love it. So how was your experience with that? You know, were you kind of taking from Parsons and maybe having streetwear or was there really that more of that ethnic feel in your streetwear and being influenced by various ethnicities in the streetwear you were providing? Yeah, the streetwear that I was interested in, streetwear was kind of born out of two sections. Uh, it was born out of New York hip hop, and then it was born out of the California surf skate culture. Um, so I was a little bit more, um, you know, drawn to the New York hip hop style of streetwear. So very urban. With that came, you know, a lot of the five elements of, of hip hop, you could say of, you know, b-boying and DJing and break dancing, um, emceeing, and then, you know, just, just the real feel of like the Lower East Side where it was really starting to emerge. So there were brands like um, Swish and Extra Large, Supreme, you know, Union was down in Soho. They were a big, um, you know, early pioneer in that game, Zoo York. Um, things like that. So you saw skaters, you know, wearing the streetwear. And what was cool in the early 90s is it was kind of blending two worlds. So, you know, obviously I was always out in the clubs. Um, the clubs were just, you know, booming back in the 90s in New York City. So what you would see is the high fashion uh, community, which I was a part of. And then you would see like the streetwear heads starting to merge into that world you know because the hip-hop artists were always at this you know we're chasing the models so you, you would always see you know russell simmons and and ll cool j and all these people that were kind of mixing with the high-end fashion design um community and then they kind of drew in you know some of the skaters and stuff like that so it was really really 
awesome in New York City in the 90s in that fashion scene of, of seeing all these communities blend. That's amazing. And I wonder if it was different in California, you know, just because California's demographics um, and compared to like, I would say maybe not necessarily LA, but other the outskirts, right? That surfer kind of, I have an image in my head versus New York City, where the percentage of people of color are definitely a lot more. So it's interesting, but I can imagine there was a lot of overlap, but there was a lot of distinction uh, between the two coasts. Yeah, and what happened was um, I knew that a lot of the industry was happening in California. The big trade shows were out there, the ASR show, the magic show in Las Vegas. So we packed up and we moved the company to LA. Um, and that is exactly what was happening. You kind of had two fractions that were happening. You had the surf skate culture um, that was still very surf and skate that, um, you know, you had brands like Fresh Jive that were kind of, you know, a part of that rave scene and starting to bring some of the music element in. But it was really like Massimo, Stussy, Schrobeck, mm-hmm. um, and, 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 you know, your, your real surf brands of like OP and, you know, things like that were, were still kind of a part of this world. But there was an independent, um, you know, streetwear culture that was emerging out of LA as well that was kind of you know based on uh, graffiti like con art and then um, which became more urban um, and then you started seeing you know the music get implemented there were early early like black eyed peas and jurassic park and um, people like that were a part of the streetwear culture and then you started seeing um, people move into to la like um, Shepard Ferry, who was um, Obey, and, and, and just r- really bringing this kind of this street music element that still had this kind of laid back Cali feel. Definitely the coasts were, were totally different. New York was still very New York eccentric coming from the street. And then LA had a little bit of that surf and skate was starting to move in towards the underground music scene but also in in the art scene. But then you also just had that straight Cali laid back vibe, (laughs) right? Of the just like, you know, the sun is always shining, you know, (laughs) cannabis is always plentiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and then you had like um, the the, kind of the the Cholo mix starting to come in with brands like um, Soul Assassins and, tribal and penal code and everything but yeah if we can capture this in the in the history of streetwear documentary which um we're, mm. we're about ready to tackle it's going to be a wonderful story oh i agree and the nostalgia like i'm getting chills right now and that nostalgia you're giving me that's just oh i can't wait i cannot wait <laughs> to see this streetwear doc so do you would you say that the streetwear kind of emergence in the 90s that you saw on both coasts were led by um, more folks that were non-whites? A little of both, yeah. So you did have, uh, because the surf skate culture was primarily white, they kind of opened the doors to this kind of independent, um, you know, make the t-shirt on your own, screen print it on your own, you know, hire, you know, friends and graphic designers and let's throw trade shows 
So the surf skate culture was always a little bit that FU culture to corporate <laughs> America, you know, yeah. so they kind of showed us the way business-wise to go, hey, we can have fun. This whole thing can be a party, but we could still have our brands. And then you saw a lot of, um, you know, African-American brands starting to emerge out of that, that were independent and the Latinx community with some of those brands that I mentioned. And then, you know, you saw Asians like myself and a handful of others kind of jump in the game too. Nice. And I just think about the music that coincided with the streetwear as well, uh, that, that 90s, early 2000s music. And that's that could be a documentary in itself. That's a series. That's a limited series right there. It really is. Yeah. Except I don't want to tackle all the music rights. So we'll let someone else handle that. <laughs> Absolutely. That Yeah. Your budget will be gone very yes. quickly. Yes. We just want... We just want old photos and magazine clippings of streetwear. And then that, that, that'll be my contribution to the culture. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, you never know where it leads, right? And yes, this, yes. This could be the, the, the seed that's been planted for something bigger and better and be able to get those rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I love it. And so as you were kind of doing this, I know that there was a transition point for you as mm -hmm. well. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, as I was a clothing designer, you know, I was also, you know, young and kind of partying all the profit away. So I had to get a job <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I went into, um, high-end retail. So my buddy, um, pulled me into Gucci and I started working at Gucci Beverly Hills and I started uh, getting, rounding up some celebrity clients that were coming to Gucci and we were kind of hitting it off. And uh, it was uh, Damon Wayans' crew that asked me to style um, him for some of his television projects. Uh, so that kind of led to uh, styling music videos and commercials. Uh, and then I was just on set and I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. I had always been uh, a big fan of independent film. That was a uh, big inspiration for my design work. And, but when I actually started getting, you know, getting on set and um, this is even back when music videos were still, you know, half a million dollars. So it was just a good time. It was always, you know, a long day. There were 16 hour days but you just saw the director in charge of everything. And, you know, there were a lot of people contributing um, into this one art form, you know, everything from the, the, the stylist to the makeup artist, to the casting director, um, you know, to the producers, the DPs. And I was like, this is something I wanna do. I said, I think this is the next move for me. So, um, I actually got transferred to go back to New York and I started working for Gucci in New York. Also met stylists like June Ambrose, who's a big celebrity stylist. And she kind of helped me transition into, into styling as well. And then I started going to the new school just at night after work, put a uh, short film together, sent it out to Art Center college in Pasadena. That was uh, my, my one single choice was to go to Art Center because a lot of commercial and music video directors were coming out of Art Center at the time. And that's exactly what I wanted to go into was music video and, and 
commercial. So I got accepted into Art Center College. I met my wife at the time. I was in New York. She was a actress. And we were like, hey, let's pack up the bags. Let's go to Cali. Let's have some fun. I'm going to the film school and you can pursue, you know, your mm -hmm. acting career out there. So we moved and uh, I started going to Art Center. Nice, nice. Lots of transitions there, but it feels like it's definitely just we st the beginnings of that path where, that you were weaving for you and now your family of the next steps, but being able to combine all these different loves and putting them together. And that's, that's, that's a dream. It's not always easy, you know, but it is fulfilling. Yeah, luckily, I had very supportive parents, you know, I mean, every five years, they'd be like, when are you going to medical school? <laughs> I'd be like, ah, I don't think it's going to happen at this right. point. But you right. know, thank you for, you know, supporting my artistic career this, this far, you know, thus far. And you, you, you do, you start to wonder, like, am I flip-flopping? Am I trying to do too much? But I've always just followed my heart and have been able to pursue that and get support from my family to pursue that. As, as an artist, it's kind of hard to stay singular. And uh, as you start to evolve, you start to look at other platforms. And I knew that um, storytelling was, was something that I wanted to do, uh, visual storytelling as well. Um, so I was just kind of opening up that, you know, that, that new box of really expanding um, my art uh, I also studied photography while I was at Art Center. Got to, you know, kind of play around with that as well. But um, yeah, I, I, I really, the, the, the fashion, you know, was never lost. It's always a part of, uh, it really taught me the, my aesthetic and really honed in on my sensibility as a, as a fashion designer, as a streetwear designer, you know, working both streetwear and high end, you know, once I got the Gucci, it was all just flash and branding and you know how, how to really build a brand so yeah I was I was learning kind of branding and entrepreneurship during that whole experience that has helped me as a as a filmmaker that's amazing uh, amazing so fast forward lots going on in between but now i feel like with everything that we've talked about because we know each other outside of this episode mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of that is really just honed in right now not to say that there's not a lot to evolve but everything you're doing right now is really a, an accumulation of all of these different experiences and so I would love to talk a little bit about what you're doing today and all the wonderful work that you are starting with this, this just this amazing combination of everything we've talked about. So tell our listeners some of the things that you're working on right now. And uh, for the people that are watching the video of this, why I might be dressed up in a hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Do, right? <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. So I have been an athlete all my life. That was probably the thing that I initially thought was going to get me out of my little town in Ohio was that I was a star athlete in my town, both basketball and baseball. And, you know, I had dreams of becoming a, a pro baseball player. But that that kind of I, I was like five, nine, five, ten by the time I hit my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And then 
I grew to five eleven and a half, and that was it. <laughs> so the dream, yeah, the dream of being a basketball player, you know, not that, you know, yes, there were five three basketball players, and but yes, at at five eleven and a half, it, it was a hard path for for uh, both baseball and, and basketball. But always stayed fit, stayed active as much as I could, and I after film school, I started directing both commercials and reality television. So I got to the unscripted side pretty quickly, um, MTV, BET, uh, and then that led me to The Ultimate Fighter um, on Spike Television. So I was a director producer on that. And I just, you know, we used to film, you know, 16 guys basically training all day. <laughs> And, and that kind of made me miss the camaraderie of sports and being a part of a team. And I remember reality television can take a toll on you mm -hmm. um, if you're on the road a lot, and, which I was. Um, and uh, my wife and I had our first son at the time. I was doing Ultimate Fighter and I was six days in Las Vegas um, with my family living in LA. So I'd have to drive back to LA, see my, see my kid for, you know, literally six, seven hours and drive right back to Las Vegas. So I kind of knew I wanted off of that train. And that led me to um, some, some working full time on the digital side, first with a company in LA called Vimby, um, which ultimately became the Mark Burnett Digital Studio. I helped, I was a founder and creative director of Vimby. Um, but because of Vimby, I got recruited to come to Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. There was a, a media company called Stack that had a high school fitness magazine. They were the only one in the country, and they had a partnership with Gatorade. They also had a tie to, to IMG, which is the big sports uh, agency and academy. There's a division here in Cleveland. So they brought me here to Cleveland, and at the time, also because this coincides, my wife was at, uh, stopped acting, uh, after she had our first child and, uh, started working for Lululemon. She became a, a very popular fitness instructor out in LA. Lululemon scooped her up as I was getting recruited to come to Cleveland. She had an opportunity to become the store manager of Lululemon here in Cleveland and to open up mm -hmm. a couple stores here. So that was a great opportunity. Five years went by of both of us in those roles. And my wife always had a uh, dream of opening up a fitness boutique. So I was like, hey, I want in on this. Cause I started running, I started running like Tough Mudders and things like that, which um, I was really down to three workouts, which was cycling, uh, yoga, and boot camp. We decided to open up what is called Groove Ride. Um, that is a fitness boutique. It's a micro gym that offers um, like Soul Cycle indoor styling. We have like a Barry's boot camp style boot camps. We also do bar yoga and boxing. Uh, and we became really, really popular here in Cleveland, Ohio. Within, you know, four years, we had three studios, thousands of followers, and, um, and then the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, it made us really look at a lot of things. Both the pandemic was happening, the election was happening, and uh, a lot of social unrest was happening uh, with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and, and, and uh, many, others. many others, yeah. countless others. 
So um, it made us really examine our business in the arena that we're in, um, which is high-end fitness. Uh, you know, there are companies out there that kind of started this whole trend, um, you know, SoulCycle and some of the ones in New York. And they were very adamant and open in the beginning saying, hey, we um, are looking to cater to the top 1% of Manhattan. So right. that excludes a lot of people, especially um, BIPOC, you know, communities. Lower socioeconomic, or, middle yeah. socioeconomic, okay. exactly, which is a varied mix of people, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people, you know, as that movement and that opportunity to open up boutiques across America started happening and we took advantage of that and have been very successful, we kind of looked at everything and said, you know what? we have an opportunity as BIPOC founders in high-end fitness to do something. So what we are focused on now is um, a streaming TV channel called Groove Me TV that we're launching hopefully this summer. We're in the pilot presentation now. And um, the two pain points that we're really focused on is that there's just a uh, lack of representation in high-end fitness with instructors or even consumers and users. If you look at, you know, even companies like Peloton who are, you know, trying to be hyper aware, you know, you look at their roster for every seven Caucasian teachers, you'll see one that might be of color. So we know that there's a lot of work to do. So what my wife and I come up with is to have a streaming TV channel that focuses on 100% health and wellness experts and instructors and founders of color. So um, that includes not only workouts on the physical side, but mental health is, is very much needed within those yes. communities. Oh, the second, second other pain point is that the huge health uh, racial health disparities mm -hmm. in black and brown communities. So just looking at those two underrepresentation and the, you know, the racial health disparities in these communities, there is a huge need for what we're doing. Um, and it's something that gets us out of bed. It's something that fires us up. So to be able to do a channel with programming and every face is going to be of color. That is the main feature. Obviously it's inclusive. So we will see users and consumers. Yeah. yeah, that are that are part of this, you know, industry supporting us. They'll also be featured. But yeah, the content will contain workouts, cooking segments, um, you know, things uh, similar to headspace and calm, like guided meditation, affirmations, things like that. Um, we're going to play in the spirituality world, which is very much growing for the BIPOC communities. You're seeing a lot of new experts emerging. Uh, in that spirituality space, whether it's, um, you know, crystal healing, uh, sound baths and, and things like that. So yeah, just a real positive, feel good celebration channel. Oh, I cannot to. wait. That sounds so amazing. And what I'm also thinking about as you're talking about, you know, you're starting off BIPOC, but everything else you're talking about can be very much inclusive of different religious identities, uh, people who may be uh, hard of hearing or deaf or blind, you know, just being able to have uh, access. And many different folks can have access because you as the founders are focused in on that. And so you are going to be able to open up this world to so many different people and be able to get feedback on what's working and what isn't and be able to cater to so many folks that have been left out for again far too long 
Yeah, yeah. You know, another thing that's cool, a big part of the channel will feature, we're doing, you know, anywhere from five minute to 10 minute documentaries on some of these people that you're mentioning. And yeah, so we can just kind of highlight their story within these um, mini docs. So we're very, very much excited about telling those stories. Yes, I cannot wait to be doing yoga next to somebody in a hijab who's fully clothed. <laughs> right, or, right. You know, somebody who's in a chair. I used to teach in a senior home I, uh, their fitness classes. And I remember this one woman who was amazing. Uh, she couldn't stand, but she would sit and she she knew her modifications, but she could do everything except the squats and things like that. But she would do her triceps, she would do her biceps. I mean, she would do it all and she would sit in her chair. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, wow, this is so cool. And she was, you know, she was there and present and it was, it was really great. It was good to see that. Zosimo, I am so excited for this channel coming up and I'm excited for the streetwear doc. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, if you had to give me, this is my like staple question. If you had one call to action for us to be more inclusive in our lives, what is something that you would want to provide our listeners? I think you have to try. And, you know, activism comes in many, many different forms. It's easy to kind of hide in the background. And, you know, we've been stereotyped as a passive, docile community, you know, for, or even encouraging the elders to start to speak up, to report incidents and crimes, because I think we're being taken advantage of for having some of those qualities. So uh, my activism would be, don't be afraid to speak, you know, show your concern. You will probably have opposition. The more vocal you are, there will always be somebody there to combat you and troll you. And I think we have to be prepared for that. We have to be able to persevere through some of that noise to get to the other side, you know, as we've seen. It's been a huge fight for the African-American community for years and decades within this community. And, um, centuries. You know, yeah. yeah, centuries. And we are, you know, we, we do learn from that, from those movements. Um, you know, we, we are a part of those movements. We participate in those movements. And, uh, you know, just recently, it's kind of come to light that we have our own fight, as we probably always have, but this is that kind of rally cry for us to find each other, to find strength in numbers. And that's how you and I met, you know, on Clubhouse with a, with a great group that we've kind of assembled and put together and have been a support group for one another. And yeah. yeah, I think a lot of times and just, you know, like I said, I grew up in a community with not many BIPOC faces yeah, of Asian descent. And I kind of had to find them as I went to New York and LA and even, you know, back here in Cleveland trying to uh, wrangle up a group. Yeah, we're out there and we just need to find each other, support each other. I know that we could be competitive with one another. And we are just stronger together. You know, it's a, 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 any win for me is a win for someone else, you know, you know, anywhere that I can share my experience and share my knowledge and resources with somebody just, just helps us uh, as a whole. And I think we got to look at it now, look at everything as a, as a whole, you know, we are all a, a, a part of this struggle. 
Um, and, and first and foremost, I think it's realizing that you are a part of this struggle because it's very easy to say, ah, that does not apply to me. You know, we don't face racism where I live. We're totally accepted within the community, but you, you have to look at all of us together. Wonderful, wonderful, absolutely. And uh, everything you said about you being a supporter and being there is absolutely who you are, Zozomo. So I thank you for that. Where can our uh, listeners connect with you online and other places? The best place is to find me on Instagram, just at Zosimo Maximo. You know, if you want to check out Groove Ride, what we're doing there, that is um, at Groove Ride. It's G-R-O-O-V-E-R-Y-D-E. And then just as a filmmaker, hopefully you'll be seeing some of my things on air here soon. Awesome. Through me TV will have a uh, you know a launch. As I said, we're in the pilot presentation, and once we get towards launch, you'll definitely be hearing about it. That's amazing, Zozomo. Thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.